Good afternoon. It's Thursday, the 16th of June, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today. Well, Debbie Evans has joined me in the studio. Hello, Debbie. And uh, myself, Brian Gerrish. And today we're going to do a fairly clipped news. So we're aiming for about an hour. Um, lots of interesting things to talk about. We are going to kick off with the subject of Ukraine, but something which I think that uh, everybody needs to be focused focused on, if uh, we can pop this one up on screen, where are we? Um, is the fact that, of course, the longer this war goes on, the more people are dying and being injured. And it's become very clear there's certain statistics which the West do not want to reveal. And that, in principle, is Ukraine's total casualties. Uh, we showed this uh, image a couple of days ago from the Telegraph. Ukraine soldiers face 200 daily casualties with desertions on the rise. But the key question to add into that is uh, what are they talking about here? Because the reality is that many of the commentators are now talking about 200 dead per day. And if that's the figure, uh, then we're going to be talking roughly four times that in wounded uh, and these are horrific figures as the day uh, as the war moves over uh, well over 100 days. Uh, but according to BBC Western media, no consistent figures on Ukrainian casualties. But of course, they're desperate to stress that the Russians are losing huge amounts of men. Truth in the battle is that uh, because it's now an artillery war and shelling is doing the damage, and the Russians outgun the Ukrainians. It is the Ukrainians that are suffering uh, the terrible casualties, particularly amongst troops that, that, that are uh, increasingly untrained. So if we just bring that back on screen. And what have we got to say? Well, at the end of the day, and we're not uh, laughing in any way about this, but for the West and its proxy war agenda, it's clearly, oh, what a lovely war. Debbie, what do the mothers, wives, partners in Ukraine really think about what's happening on the front? What, what are they doing in Ukraine at the moment? <laughs> do you know what? Honestly, Brian, I am so confused by everything. The propaganda that's coming out, uh, the papers, uh, the mainstream media, what's coming out that I, I've completely, thank goodness, UK column reports on what's going on because... I simply don't know what's propaganda and what isn't. And this morning, um, I noticed that there were everybody was sunbathing on a beach in Ukraine. And of course, you know, if there was a war in in the UK, we would we would still want to go to beaches. You know, not everywhere is going to be affected. But I just found that it was a very relaxed picture. And I thought, gosh, the mainstream media aren't they're not reporting that, are they? Uh, no. Well, of course, the, the thing we have to remember about Ukraine is it's a vast country. There's an area roughly the size of, of England at war at the moment, Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians with backing, of course, by, by the Russians for the separatists. But Ukraine is a vast country. And if you're not affected by the fighting, life is going to go on. But as you say, uh, the reports are particularly strange. And we make no apology for continuing to focus in on the BBC. So from major headlines all the time, the Ukrainian reports are now softened and they're dropped into the background of the BBC page. So where do you find Ukraine here? Well, you've got to look for one, the very emotive headline, uh, the Russians said beatings were my re-education. 
And then we're back into the, uh, the faint grey timeline where the BBC is report, supposedly reporting on what's happening in Ukraine. But the main thing of the, the headline about the beatings is that the, the BBC story is that everything nasty and vicious that's happening in Ukraine, oh, that is just done by the Russians. So the BBC is the propaganda mouthpiece for Ukraine. And we've got to remind our audience again that it was the BBC's pernicious political charity, BBC Media Action, that trained the Ukrainian state media. So ultimately, who created this propaganda machine? Uh, it has to be the BBC. But the major part of the BBC reporting, if you get into the live Ukrainian reports, is this European trio in Kiev as Ukraine pushes for more weapons. And this is a reference uh, to the visit by uh, the French president, uh, Macron. Uh, we've got the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, and the Italian pri prime minister, Mario Draghi. Now, what uh, is the key bit of this? Well, uh, more weapons. There's no question of what the West wants. It wants to get more weapons into Ukraine because at the moment the Ukrainians are being overwhelmed by the Russians and uh, the US, the UK, and to some extent the, Euro the Europeans through the EU would have us believe that more weapons is ultimately going to save Ukraine. Interestingly enough, all of the um, free media, alternative media reporters are saying very clearly that extra weapons are certainly not going to make any difference because the Ukrainian force is now decimated in many areas with the quality, quality troops gone and the support only coming in from militia and untrained troops. So will these weapons make much of a difference? We're not too sure. Have we got any left, Brian? Because as far as I remember, hadn't we got, we, we were running short, weren't we, in the UK? We were giving all our weapons to Ukraine. Well, we were giving all of our weapons to Ukraine, but of course the number of weapons that have gone to Ukraine, very, very small. And uh, uh, the, the statement publicly has been that we're going to give weapons to overwhelm the Russians. But the truth of the matter is, Ukraine has been given old weapons, it's been given weapons delivered in a state of disrepair. And uh, even the Americans recently have put in those HIMARS, the uh, missile launchers, but in such few numbers that they're not going to make any difference to the war. So uh, it's to do with weapons. And if you need weapons from the West, you're going to have to pay for them. So uh, the idea that Ukrainians are being given weapons is simply nonsense. But have a look at this headline. And uh, the key bit here is that Ukraine is now going to, uh, is now going to uh, Israel in order to ask for more uh, weapons. Uh, sorry, it's for more money. Where, where is the money going to go? It's going to go on weapons. So what have we got here? Uh, Ukraine asking Israel for half a billion dollar loan half a billion dollar loan. And uh, what is the reality? Well, of course, the weapons being put into Ukraine, particularly from the US, are effectively coming uh, from a lend-lease arrangement, which means that loans are going to have to pay for those weapons. And Ukraine 
uh, well, it has ceased to exist as a country because it is the Americans which are paying the salaries of public officials in Ukraine. So Ukraine is dissolving in front of our eyes uh, while the proxy war goes on and the deaths go on. And all of this, of course, is to the entire satisfaction uh, of the US, the UK, the EU, the West in general, to uh, try and drain uh, Russia and drain Russian military and its forces, whilst at the same time, Ukraine has simply been wiped out as a nation state. I wonder, Debbie, at some stage, you would have thought that uh, Zelensky would wake up to the fact that he's been utterly conned by the West. Well, you would have thought so. And am I right in thinking, Brian, that Ukraine were already in deep in debt? I think to the international monetary, I might be, I might be wrong, I'm sure our viewers will check up, but I, I think Ukraine were very deeply in debt to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So asking for more money, I'm, Zelensky has got no clue, I don't think, that he's being... What is it? What what do you used. do with puppets? Used, yes, yeah. thank you. I don't think he's got any idea. Or if he has, then you have to question what kind of a man he is. Uh, he's an actor. He, he's an actor. A comedian. And I, and I think that's helping him survive at the moment, yeah. Debbie. But uh, why is he not doing anything? I think for reasons that we discussed a little bit on the UK Column News a few days ago, where we said the problem is he's between the devil and the deep blue sea, because if he doesn't do what the West wants, and what his internal right-wing extreme element want, which is to fight the Russians, then the probability is that they're going to turn around and accuse him of failure. Possibly Zelensky gets accused of treason and he's not looking in a good position. But let's follow through on the um, Israel article. So here's a little bit of the content. Uh, many countries in the world have already allocated loans for Ukraine. And... Um, uh, uh, Shimon Breiman, an expert on Israeli-Ukrainian ties, uh, said that countries like Japan, Germany and Canada are given similar loans, sorry, have given similar loans to Ukraine, amounting to billions of dollars with long grace periods and low annual interest rates. And then we've got a bit more information since uh, Joe Biden's inauguration last year. Washington alone has provided Ukraine with 5.3 billion in military assistance. So Ukraine sucking in money. Uh, what does it want the, the money for, for war? I'll uh, just uh, put this on because I think it's very important. This article also highlights that Israel itself has played an instrumental role in providing Ukraine, <coughs> Ukraine with large numbers of armed mercenaries. So this is vicious stuff. Ukraine uh, drowning in debt, and the only reason it wants the money is not to help its citizens to even rebuild infrastructure or feed them, it's to get the weapons in to continue the West's proxy war. And uh, I'd like to uh, congratulate many of the websites that are now reporting extremely interesting and well-researched information about the war. This is Moon of Alabama that I've mentioned before. There are many others. We will try and uh, mention them on the UK column. Uh, but in this article, uh, the uh, thrust of the article is the fact that Ukraine at the moment is supposed to be short of ammunition. And I certainly believe that's true. Even the Western media, the Washington Post, for example, is talking about this. 
Um, and they can only fire 6,000 shells per day compared to about 50,000 a day by the Russians. Uh, but the point of this article is that uh, Ukraine says it's short of ammunition, but it's actually fired 300 shells into the civilian areas in Donetsk. Now, there are no military targets there, so this was a particularly vicious attack. Uh, I know that uh, Mike mentioned this on the UK column yesterday, but we thought we'd just reinforce the fact that many other commentators are picking up on the fact that it is just nonsense to be pointing a finger uh, the whole time at the nasty actions of the Russians when it's very clear that Ukrainian forces are targeting civilians on a daily basis. And of course, if we think we are uh, going to get a report through on this, well, we're not going to be able to uh, read it in Russia Today because Russia Today is actually uh, banned in so many Western countries. And the alternative media reporting is too dangerous because, of course, it exposes the Western proxy war agenda for, for what it is. And uh, I, I'm confident in telling the audience there are yet more very good uh, analysts who've been reporting the true situation on Ukraine who have now either lost funding streams through PayPal, for example, or have had their material blocked. Uh, so it's clear that we're in a, uh, I'm smiling as I say this, we're in a democracy where truth is just banned. Completely banned. And, you know, um, as, as you know, I, I leave Ukraine to, to, to you gentlemen and to Vanessa. But what I have seen um, coming, in, coming up in the news recently is that there's an outbreak of cholera in Mariupol. So that's not in the mainstream media either. Um, a few reports, i got to say, yeah. uh, Debbie, if you look now? for it, because uh, the BBC in particular used those reports to, to blame it on the Russians. So uh, never mind that there's been war and conflict. It was, it was the Russians' fault yeah. uh, that apparently there was cholera. Uh, but th that statement was made at the very time the Russians were reporting that they were being successful in getting parts of the water system in Mariupol back up and running. So, so the uh, cholera was used as another propaganda exercise. More propaganda. Uh, one man who's been reporting uh, from very close to the front line in many areas of the fighting in eastern Ukraine uh, is an American called Patrick Lancaster. Um, let's have a look at this little video clip when he was in the suburbs of Donetsk. Uh, when the shelling started. So, that was pretty darn close. Uh, so we see it's about every four minutes or so. Uh, Fuck! 
Okay, that's quicker than four minutes. Shit. Uh, <laughs> so, well, you can see, this is a civilian area. It's coming under intense shelling right now. Well, that, that clip, obviously, we, we've cut down uh, longer with much more commentary and uh, interaction with the, uh, the lady there that you can see in, uh, you can see in the clip. Uh, but of course, the reality of the shelling is only too clear. And uh, what she says to Patrick Lancaster there is when he's saying, do you want to go? She says, well, no, I don't want to go. And this is how it's been for a long time. And of course, this again is something the BBC and the Western media does not want to talk about the years of shelling which uh, people in eastern Ukraine have suffered at the hands of their countrymen and men and women. So uh, there's a lot more to get out. But of course, if you want to see the reality of uh, what Ukraine is doing on the ground, uh, you're going to have to go to alternative media. Now, we uh, gave an inadvertent uh, preview of this uh, clip uh, um, the other day, Monday's news. Uh, because I'd picked up on the fact that the, Ukraine, uh, the BBC was getting very excited about another British mercenary dying. And this was Jordan uh, Gatley. He'd been killed in fighting. And uh, the point I was making is the whole article was around uh, what any parent would say about their child when they died, that uh, loving parents, he was a wonder, wonderful son, and effectively he died a brave and tragic death. But I think if we think about it a little bit more, uh, he fought and died as a paid mercenary in a war that he couldn't possibly understand because all he would know about the war uh, would be what the mainstream press says about it. And he was foolish enough to go off and fight a war of a type which he would not have experienced before. So brave, we can say yes, uh, but misguided, I think we also have to add to that. But the BBC wanted to get stuck into this very strongly. Uh, this was part of the article, though. The Foreign Office advises against all travel to Ukraine, and the Ministry of Defence has said that Britons who go to join the fighting following the Russian invasion may be committing a criminal offence and will be liable to prosecution. In March, the head of the British Armed Forces said that Britons should not go to Ukraine to fight and should find other ways to help. Admiral Satoni Radikin told the BBC the sound of gunfire was not something you would rush to. And uh, we just pop over the top of that. So what have we got? The Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence washing uh, their hands of the, of the whole matter. So it's pretty sickening stuff, really. Oh, it's interesting, though, isn't it, that Liz Truss um, was encouraging every... Uh, or, or anybody to go and help and then all of a sudden now they're being told not to so um well very... we've, we've got a little bit more uh, comment on that in a, in, in a moment but right. yes you're absolutely right we, we have a minister who says get out there and fight yeah. and then the moment the casualties start which were going to be inevitable everybody's uh, backtracking but this really shows us the quality of the British government and perhaps this becomes an, uh, an appropriate headline because we've got uh, UK PM Boris Johnson suffers blow 
as a second ethics advisor resigns. Well, ethics in the UK government is probably an oxymoron, uh, but let's see what they say. It says Christopher Geep, the independent advisor on ministers' interests last month, said Johnson must explain why he thought he had not broken the ministerial code after being fined. And he went on to say, with regret, I feel that it's right that I'm resigning from my post. Uh, Geet, whose role was to advise Johnson on matters relating to the ministerial code of conduct, did not give a reason for his resignation. Well, of course, he didn't need to because he had to resign because uh, either uh, Boris lost credibility or his uh, advisor lost credibility. So I'm going to say at least this man had the guts to actually resign and um, show show his cute, true colours and thoughts. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is the second, the second one that's had to resign. Uh, and this ethics, this whole job description, how can you be independent when you're investigating your own boss or, or you're looking at matters pertaining to your own boss? How is that independent? So the whole role of the job I think needs to be reworked and relooked at because I don't see how it can possibly work, even even if they do find somebody to to replace Lord Guide. It just seems like a completely futile job to have. Yeah. As somebody said to me uh, a couple of days ago, essentially the system, the parliamentary system now seems so broken yeah. that it's impossible to mend it. It needs cleaning out and and for us to be starting again. I must say, I agree with that statement. Build back better? Uh, well, don't mention that one, <laughs> no. no. Uh, so let's come back to that uh, comment that you made about Liz Trust. We had a very interesting email came in uh, today. This is it, pants on fire. In February, Lizzie Trust, uh, on, uh, so Liz Trust on Sunday, bizarrely suggested the government would back Brits who want to go and fight in Ukraine against Russian troops. The Foreign Secretary told the BBC Sunday morning show, if people want to support that struggle, I would support them in doing that. So that's what she had to say. So that was back in February. And the email says, well, what about in June? Uh, well, thanks very much to uh, Linda Lauderdale. Uh, so um, this is what she had to, uh, this is a reply she received from the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth office. It says, thank you for your email of 10th of June to the Foreign Secretary about the sentencing of the two British nationals in Ukraine. Your correspondence has been passed to the correspondence office in the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office for a response. We condemn the sentencing of Aidan Aslin and Sean Pinner, who are being held by the Russian proxies in eastern Ukraine. This is a sham judgment, which has no legitimacy. Uh, notice they can't even talk about who's holding them. They just describe them as Russian proxies. And the second part of it is here. We call for anyone detained to be treated humanely in accordance with the requirements for international humanitarian law. In the case of competence, they are entitled to prisoner of war status. As POWs, uh, they're entitled to competent immunity, meaning they may not be prosecuted for participation in hostilities. Our thoughts remain with the men and their families. We welcome the Ukrainian government's efforts to secure their release. We continue to do everything we can to support them working with the government of Ukraine. The UK is not supporting British nationals going to Ukraine to fight in the conflict. If you travel to fight or assist in the conflict, your activities may amount to offences against UK legislation and you could be prosecuted. Well, people did travel Foreign and Commonwealth Office 
and uh, the Russians and Ukrainians say you are foreign paid mercenaries, you're killers, paid for doing the job. And when you're captured, you're going to face the rule of law uh, in eastern Ukraine or Russia. But uh, Linda's point is a very good one that uh, it's outrageous that this should be the situation. Yeah. Uh, another email that came in uh, changes the subject for us. It's this one. Hi, Brian. It was great meeting you yesterday. If we can just pop that on screen, please. I was mostly right about Eilish Angelini. She received the order of the thistle on the same day Blair got the garter. Ooh. So many people deeply upset that Tony Blair uh, has now got his full dress and stockings. Um, but of course, this lady uh, also received the order of the thistle. And if our viewers and listeners don't know anything about her, uh, you might like just to pop her name into the search box on the UK column. And the story that comes up is the tragic uh, uh, story around uh, Robert Green and a young lady that suffered abuse in Scotland. And this is a particular story that the UK column assisted with for years. And uh, the trail ultimately led into the Scottish government. And uh, uh, you can read a number of articles on UK column as to uh, what we discovered. Now, I'm also going to say thank you very much to a viewer um, who highlighted uh, this gentleman. Um, so we've got a picture here of uh, Children and Families Minister Will Quince on screen. And he was answering questions in Parliament a few days ago. Um, after a review of childcare calls for a radical reset. I found that reset. very interesting expression because, of course, across the media at the moment, everything is about a reset. So let's listen to a very, very short clip as to what this man said. Looking, looking at um, my, my Instagram feed, Mr Speaker, many colleagues often refer that I, that I have the, the best job in government. And to some extent, they'd be, they'd be right. It's every weekend I read the serious incident notification report, which details all children that have been killed, murdered, abused, neglected or taken their own lives over the course of the previous week. Well, I hope our viewers and listeners were as, are as stunned as I was when I listened to that, because... He appeared to be joking about the fact that part of his job is to listen to the number of children who are suffering uh, under a failed care system uh, to the point they are dying. Now, I, I think it was, it was a, a misplaced emphasis. I think he was trying to emphasise how serious it was by saying, I have to enjoy uh, reading this material, but it didn't work well. However, it did prompt me to go looking for the statistics that he's talking about. And today we're just going to give people a brief introduction to these statistics. So this is a screenshot. It, it doesn't download in a very easy uh, system for you to, to look at. But if you look over on the right hand side, you can see the numbers of children um, who have suffered um, in, the, uh, uh, in the system. And if I animate this, just on screen briefly, um, you, you can see the total. So you've got 108 children, you've got 167. There are a lot of children here, uh, all suffering under a failing child care system. And it takes one MP to stand up in Parliament and point out that there's something wrong because he has to read this stuff. So what is going on and why is this not front page on a national 
papers. Well, I think we know the question, the state wants to keep it buried. Um, but let's move on to this segment here uh, because we can see things very clearly. Uh, because if we look at the data uh, from 2018 across, we've got children's deaths within the system. 117, 110, 89, 99, 119. Debbie, I was absolutely shocked when I saw this because I have not seen this data before. No, it's the first time I've seen it, Brian, and I'm, I'm actually quite overwhelmed by it and quite, I'm, I'm shocked. I'm still trying to process it. It's the first time I've seen it too. It's absolutely shocking. Well, we will do some, we'll do some more research on the statistics and we'll also show people that the uh, civil servants who supposedly got the, re the responsibility for protecting children via this system and, and its data collection. Now, I just want to pop this on uh, briefly because this was something that we saw a few days ago. We were fascinated by it. It's King's College London um, and uh, it's going back to 20, May 2021. Uh, but here's the headline, how culture wars start. And it says, is the US, sorry, is the UK going down the same road as the US? Question mark. Well, the interesting thing when you read this is you quickly ask yourself, uh, is this actually a study or is it a plan? So we've got here that, uh, let's, let's read a little bit. The intensifying focus on a culture war in the UK has worrying echoes of discussions that took off in the US three decades ago. The attack on US capital in January can be seen as the culmination of cultural and social divides that coalesced and hardened in the intervening years, where America leads, Britain often follows. Uh, but this is not a trail we want to trace. Well, they're absolutely tracing it because this is what the whole article is about. And so they now say uh, they're looking at the evidence. We're reviewing the literature, conducting an extensive new survey with our excellent research partners, Ipsos Mori, and systematically analyzing media content since the 1990s. We'll be holding a series of events, including with British Future. I don't get a good feeling about this. And if you go on later, uh, everything you read in the article says to me, is this really a study or have we got people working in the background to see whether we can deepen division in UK in order to create a proper culture war uh, in UK society. And I, I know, Debbie, that one of the things you've picked up on over the last couple of days is the very emotive study uh, subject of immigration. And of course, uh, we know that at the moment people are being moved out of Ukraine as one example into other countries in order to break down the structure of that, uh, of that host nation. This, this is a very cynical use of people. Yeah, completely. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting to note that that's King's, again, King's College. And of course, we mentioned King's College last week, I think it was, when we were talking about the Parisia website for disinformation and misinformation. So King's College are very, very involved in, in the whole Golden Triangle universities, London, Oxford, Cambridge. Never forget Imperial and King's because they're very big in all of this. Yes, and a lot more work to be done on exactly what our universities, yeah. universities are doing in a political sense. Yeah. Now, we'd like to say, uh, if, you would, uh, if you like what the UK column is doing and you want to support us, then you can uh, 
take out a subscription, come and join the community network and hear what other people are talking about. Uh, you can, of course, visit our shop and have a look at some of the uh, things on offer, uh, many of which are going quite quickly at the moment. So if you want to get one of those uh, items, whether it's a hoodie or a T-shirt or a bag, get in there. And everything that UK Column is putting out, we are doing because we want to inform as many people as possible. So do share our material um, because the aim is to get as many people as possible to at least uh, see it, listen to it, and make up their own minds as to what's really happening in UK and the world. Now we've uh, advertised this before, but Saturday 18th of June, 1 p.m. outside Truro Cathedral, uh, we've got a solution-based freedom rally with a number of speakers. Uh, we're delighted to help promote these events because it ensures that uh, alternative viewpoints are coming to the public. That doesn't mean to say we agree with everything that every speaker says, we agree with the free speech principle that people should be able to stand up and say what they think about any subject. Uh, we're also going to put this one up, uh, which will keep people guessing a little bit, the subjects, the United Nations. And uh, I'm just going to say that on tomorrow's UK Column News, uh, Debbie is going to uh, do a UK Column News exclusive about something that she's discovered with the United Nations. This is pretty incredible. We're not going to say what it is, Debbie, but this is pretty incredible when you it is. listen to, to what is being said. Yes, I think it is pretty incredible. And the, um, the results of what you will, will hear as well, how it follows on, and the fact that this is the United Nations and uh, we're not talking about the World Economic Forum or the World Health Organization for a change, this time it's the United Nations. So have a look tomorrow and we'll be able to tell you some more. Okay, now we're going to move on to uh, a subject which you have stayed focus on, focused on from the very beginning of the COVID-19 so-called pandemic. And the subject is the MHRA, supposedly the regulating, and I'm going to say safety agency for the UK. Uh, you, you will challenge me on that for good reason. Um, but you have you have been consistent in uh, looking into what the MHRA is up to. And over a number of months, great many number of months now, you've been warning people about what the MHRA says it's doing. How do we know what it's doing? Well, we've only got to look at their board meetings. And you said to me shortly before we started the news uh, that our viewers and listeners need to go and look at the latest Yes, it's up, everybody. I got so excited last week because the April board meeting, which is the one that I attended, I got tickets for, was finally put up online. And I have been doing a lot of work on it. And we are going to bring you a far more in-depth report about their board meeting. But for everybody, please go to YouTube. Um, I think there was only about 200 views. And before we've managed to get those views up to seven eight thousand and because of that we believe that the mhra are now taking down or at least not publicly broadcasting all of their board meetings so we've got some gaps so it's really important that everybody goes and if you, even if you can just click on it and watch it for a little while and then maybe go back to it later we're not asking you to watch the whole two hours in one hit but to register that you viewed and make a comment, subscribe to the MHRA channel 
on um, YouTube would be really helpful. But we'll go into depth about what they say because it's it's very, very interesting. Loose lips sink ships is all I'll say. So that's coming up. But um, for the time being, I think we've got some more on the MHRA, haven't we, Brian? Well, we, we've got quite a bit more. And yeah. uh, this, I think, is, is fascinating and very important. We wanted to just highlight to people, well, you wanted to highlight to people June Ray, uh, because June is the uh, lead figure in the MHRA. You, you've tried to engage with this lady on a number of subjects, but mm. now met a brick wall in getting a reply. Yeah, I am. And I'm really sad about it. And if Dame June Rain is watching, which I hope she is, um, I have emailed you, Dame June, to ask if you would like to speak to us and if we could interview you and just ask you a few questions. Um, but as yet, I've made three complaints to the MHRA and I've only received an acknowledgement and they're meant to re respond to you within 18 days. But I'm now at day 42, I think it is, and I still haven't had an answer to my complaint and also to my complaints. And also I put questions in at the April board meeting um, and they still haven't been answered either, although I've received acknowledgements from the MHRA to say they will be um, answered. In the meantime, the board meeting's up online and the new board meeting, the, the next board meeting, is set to take place next week. And you'll be very glad to know I'm on it. So I shall be looking forward. And I know a lot of other UK viewers are as well, UK column viewers are as well. So um, I will see you, well, probably not literally see you there because it's on Zoom, but as many people do try and, and watch because it's hugely important and they don't realise we're watching them. So we need to be keeping a close eye. Okay, so we've got some video clips coming up. June Rain uh, went to uh, Somerville um, College, College, Oxford. thank you, um, yep. Oxford in 1971 to study physiology. She then went on to do a degree, an MSc in pharmacology. And then she took a medical degree in 1978 to become a member of the Royal College of Physicians. But obviously Somerville holds a special place in her heart. And uh, a little while ago, she was uh, joined by a lady called Dame Bingham. And uh, they were talking about all matters to do with COVID-19 and pharmacovigilance and vaccines. Uh, let's start out with the first of three clips, which is Dame Bingham herself. Uh, just remind us who Dame Bingham is in the scheme of pharmacovigilance. Dame Kate Bingham was instrumental in the development of the Oxford um, AstraZeneca vaccine. And um, what I found very interesting about this lecture, and, and I'll, say, I'll say it to you now, Brian, again, there ain't nothing like a dame because you've got two for the price of one here. So this lecture is Dame Kate Bingham for the first half an hour, giving her account of how she found out that she was going to be instrumental in the rollout of the and manufacturing of this, this new vaccine, Oxford vaccine. She gets very excited about it and they laugh a lot about it. I didn't think it was a particularly funny subject, but they laugh a lot about it. And then in the second hour, you have the now Dame June Rain talking about safety, pharmacovigilance and the MHRA. So you've got the blend, two ladies, both from the same college, Somerville College, revisiting their college and almost singing the college song. They're very happy to be back, reunited with Oxford. OK, let's run the first clip and see how jolly they are. OK, so let's just see. You can hear me? 
perfect. So thank you so much for having me and thank you for giving me such an astonishingly warm um, Somervillian welcome. Um, as as uh, Neelam, thank you and congratulations for your election. But as um, Neelam said, um, I did end up uh, applying uh, to Christchurch uh, in part because there was no tutor for biochemistry at the time um, here at Somerville, although mum put up a very good case. Um, uh, but that was where it ended up. So, Jan, thank you so much for having me. Um, thank you for putting on this astonishingly room uh, packed of people uh, for today's uh, talk. Um, and I wanted to uh, just re rehearse a little bit um, what we did with uh, the Vaccine Task Force. And what I'm going to do is rattle through very quickly, just hitting the headlines um, of what we did, and then basically try and leave as much time as possible um, uh, for questions, um, which I hope I'll be able to answer. Um, and Mum, thank you for bringing me here, and thank you for being a Somervillian. So. Okay, I haven't passed the IQ test yet. Okay, let's try that. Okay, I can't make, I'll do it on the screen then. Okay, so May the 6th um, was when I was first called um, to uh, be the first chair of, the, of the, um, this new vaccine task force. But in fact, it wasn't the first thing I'd been pulled in to do. So Patrick Valance is actually the reason why I'm standing here. So he uh, and I knew each other very well from when he was running R&D at GSK. And right from the beginning, Patrick recognised that um, the government's approach to um, vaccines was not all it could be. So he kept pushing and pushing and saying, you know, what are we doing about vaccines? And the answer kept coming back, don't worry, we're on it. And after a few times being told, don't worry, we're on it, he then said, OK, tell me what you're on. And the answer was, uh, we're going to try and procure vaccines just like we do with flu. And at that point, Patrick said, OK, enough's enough. I'm going to create a, what he then called was a vaccine task force. But what that was, was actually a group of officials within Bayes, which is the business department, um, to be advised by an expert group of uh, uh, vaccine professionals. So that actually started mid-March. I ended up with an um, email on April Fool's Day um, inviting me to join this expert group, and to which my reaction was, well, I'm not a vaccine expert, Patrick. Why on earth are you asking me? And the answer was what he wanted was somebody with that expertise and knowledge of the small company landscape, because that's actually where the innovation comes from, even if it's ultimately the pharmaceutical companies that uh, deliver and distribute. Well, I, I gained a lot out of that because the, the style she's delivering there is the style of the lady and the reaction of the audience and the clapping and the cheering is all very casual, very jokey. That's the way that this organisation clearly came together in the beginning. I think she's really showing us how slack, yes. um, I'm going to use the word immature, yes. sloppy, the initial arrangements were for dealing with what we were being told uh, yeah. was a major uh, health disaster. Um, so you get a flavour of, of, of it from that lady. Let's now listen to June Rain mm. talking in more detail about the MHRA itself. Many colleagues will have asked and thought, what is the MHRA? Uh, we're on two sites. It's a government body, uh, an arm's length body of the executive agency. It's an executive agency of DHSC. And I think the general view is that rules are written on tablets of stone and there's a lot of policemen in these places that go around factories, find problems with trials and generally hold things up. 
And to add to the complexity, we've already heard, not just the vaccine task force doing this incredible work to locate the products, we've got the other body, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, working out how to deploy them. And while we collaborated across these boundaries as never before, we knew that independence was going to be the key to public trust, independence in our decision-making. And so that became a very, very real focus. So you've heard from Kate a little bit about how we began immediately to transform our processes. We tore up the rule book and we allowed companies to immediately start juxtaposing, not sequential phases of clinical trials, but overlapping, beginning the next one before the previous had been finished. And that large scale manufacture being prepared at risk. We did not know if any of these vaccines would be effective. We spent a long time on guidelines and we decided in the end that 50% efficacy would really be fine. So the data began to flow in and we began in the middle of June, six months ahead of time, 2020, to start to prepare what safety surveillance we would need. And this is where I look at Kate, because Kate at that point had thought that once the purchase had been made, the approval had been signed, home and dry. And what I was able to share with you was we only really learn about benefit risk in clinical use. And we knew that there would be a vast influx of reports of side effects. No effective medicine or vaccine is without them. So a number of interesting things come out there. She casually throws in, we decided to go for 50% efficacy. That's fine. No reason. It's just 50%. That seemed fine. Right. And then she's emphasising safe, safety surveillance. But... That's not happening at all. Uh, well, certainly the, the people that I've spoken to that have reported vaccine injuries are not getting any help at all. So uh, the surveillance is not for the patient. They're not getting anything back. So it must be just surveillance on serious adverse reactions. And the data goes straight to pharmaceutical companies. But I thought what was interesting there was she was saying there's a vast influx of reports. And of course, we know that the MHRA were expecting serious adverse reactions. She said quite clearly there, there is no medicine and no vaccine that you can say is 100% safe. There will always be some adverse reactions. So therefore, if the MHRA were expecting serious adverse reactions, then why wasn't anything put in place for people when those adverse reactions became apparent or became detected through pharmacovigilance. So there's nothing in place, despite the fact that she said that she expects a vast influx of reports. So, you know, uh, Dame June and benefit and risk as well. And the benefit and risk that she was just talking about there, what I would like to say to, to all your viewers is that if you go and watch the board meeting, the MHRA board meeting, there's a big chunk on risk and benefits. And clearly, they can't do a risk assessment, but that's all in the board meeting. And I know that we'll come to that at a later stage, but I just wanted to say that a lot of the things that she says in that lecture are contradicted by what's said in the board meeting. Right, so let's have a look at the second clip where she says some more uh, very interesting things. My purpose really is to take Kate's story a little bit further and tell you how the COVID pandemic 
has catalyzed the transformation of a regulator from a watchdog to enabler. And when I say that these are exciting times in the world of regulation, there are probably quite a few who've never had exciting and regulation in the same sentence. But I do hope to be able to convince you otherwise just now. The story of this transformation is effectively a tale of two cities, of London and of Oxford. And I think I hardly need to say to this audience that Oxford University has made a contribution to defeating this vicious virus far beyond any other institution in the world. And there are millions of people alive today because of this university. The Founders' Dinner last night was just a wonderful opportunity to celebrate Somerville. And when we sang the Somerville song, some of us had in mind those early days of the 20th century, the days of writing that song and thinking about what Somerville did, not just at the end of World War I, but when the Spanish flu pandemic <laughs> clouded the efforts to get systems working again to get back to normality. And there is a lot to learn when there is a shock to a system. You discover things that work well and things that don't work so well. So fast forward 100 years and here we are. We have been hit by a massive shock. All of our systems are under review now. They're testing every part of our infrastructure and we're getting a new appreciation of how we need to build back. I nearly said build back better. <laughs> Oxford Mines, of course, were busy working. And I first had my shock to the system. It was an email message from Professor Sir Andrew Pollard late one night. Exactly two years ago today, are you available for a brief discussion about work going on here in Oxford, which will lead to extensive interactions soon. And of course, well, you might not believe this, I replied in seven minutes, and friends who know me know that that doesn't often happen. But things were already starting, starting to prepare about that manufacturer at scale, the Oxford Biomedica, that needed to be at risk preparing for the most massive preparation manufacture of vaccines. In London, meanwhile, Thoughts were on something else, COVID tests. How would we get the COVID tests at the volume and scale that we would need? Where would we get them from? So I was dashing into number 10. I didn't realise the Telegraph had managed to take a snapshot of this as I scuttled in for a meeting in the Cabinet Office about COVID tests. Sitting rather peacefully, the question arose as why a regulator was in the room. Was a regulator going to be able to do anything about this? And our PM, who seems to be able to notice things, shot a comment to me, well, the MHRA will stop us killing people. And for some reason, I immediately was able to respond, no, the MHRA will help you keep people alive. And that is the signal of the watchdog to the enabler. Um, I'm going to say straight off, it's the last comment, all the giggling and the silliness and the buffoonery these people setting something up and then she said that uh, they said to her so a regulator will stop us killing and she says no we will help keep people alive and if yeah. you think about that help keep people alive but we don't care about the people we've killed they're irrelevant they're gone they're dead 
it's unbelievably sinister the last bit yeah. and the other bit is that we've gone from being a regulator to enabler what yeah. does she mean by that she means they're working hand in glove with the pharmaceutical and the vaccine industry to develop commercial products to sell at profit so i'm, I'm getting passionate about this debbie yeah. it is outrageous what this this woman is admitting it is wicked i mean it is and and we must remember that the mhra are, are funded uh, for pharmaceuticals uh, and medicines by the pharmaceutical industry and for devices medical devices they're funded by the department of health so yeah you're absolutely right the pharmaceutical companies are funding the MHRA. And of course, we've got the board with so many conflicts of interest. We'll talk about that at another time. But clearly, this is wicked. Wicked. Yeah. And we're going to emphasize this by uh, the the, um, the event has happened. It was June the 14th. But let's put it on screen again, because this is where real people are asking for help and support as a result of their vaccine injuries. And they're having to call and ask for that support because none is available. So this is the Can We Talk About It campaign. Let's break the silence about COVID-19 vaccine injury and death. But June Rain has just said uh, uh, to the audience uh, there at Somerville College, but also um, to our audience today, no, no, we don't care about the people who've suffered injury or death uh, because our priority is working with the vaccine developers uh, in order supposedly to save people. So I, I think this is utterly uh, tragic stuff. Uh, if people are not aware of this uh, particular initiative by people who have suffered vaccine adverse reactions, you can freeze your screen and look at it. Now you highlighted some of the things that she talked about in the, the overall um, video, uh, Debbie. So we've got here, watch, uh, from watchdog to enabler, regulation in COVID and after. So we've discussed that yeah. one. Uh, collaboration, well. <laughs> Mercedes-Benz for your CPAP. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and apparently she's very proud of the fact that Mercedes-Benz developed these CPAP devices. Um, within, I think it was seven or, or nine days, they were given approval regulation. So she's just dropping the names the whole time. So on this one, we've got collaboration with Mercedes-Benz. And of course, there are many others. This one, Oxford to play host to crucial G7 health talks. And your point here is that, Debbie, the public doesn't always see this, but officials such as June Rain embedded in these semi, yeah. I'll call it quasi-secretive meetings where uh, stuff about COVID-19 was discussed, but not made public to the, uh, not made visible to the public. No, they, it was actually, um, they were discussing uh, regulation and the 100-day trial with Patrick Balance at G7 down uh, in Cornwall last year, but it was behind closed doors, so nobody quite knows what went on. Well, I've got a feeling I know what went on behind those closed doors, but we're not meant to know what goes on. Okay, now you've got a little bit, um, I've got an eye on the clock, we're going to try hard and finish at the top of the hour, but uh, you've got some detail here around the MHRA and what it's doing with its pharmacovigilance. Well, it's just really to say there, Brian, actually, that June Rain's been at this for a very long time. You'll see the date there, 2011. So she's a, a seasoned expert, if you like, in pharmacovigilance. So everything that she's been lecturing about in years gone by 
it doesn't seem to be applicable to modern day. So sometimes I'd like to remind Dame Jean Rain of her previous lectures. And for anybody that wants to look at, she's got lots of academic papers that she's written as well, that seem to be completely contradicting what's going on today. Okay, and again, going Another back, one. back yeah. in time, because this is 2009, new approaches to drug safety, a pharmacovigilance toolkit. So everything the, the, the public would believe is about safety, the ongoing assessment of the safety of marketed medicine. But in 2022, when we want to talk about safety and we want to talk about vaccine adverse reactions, which they themselves have recorded, they don't want to talk about. No, it. they absolutely don't want to talk about any of it. It's um, and it's something that we need to talk about even more. And we will we will carry on talking about it. OK, now the mail here, this is uh, going way back because this is 2006. Adverse drug reactions go unreported. She admitted in that talk yeah. that there are always adverse effects. A quarter of a million patients are admitted to hospital every year with, quote, unexpected drug reactions. But suddenly for the vaccines, we don't have any worries about it. So uh, people can again freeze the screen and have a look at it. Um, Dr. Vivian uh, Nathanson, head of BMA Ethics and Sciences, admitted the full effects of many medicines are not known until prescribed to the general public. Until prescribed to the general public, which goes back to our efficacy and effectiveness. So we don't actually know the effectiveness of these drugs in real time until we roll them out. So it's fix it while you fly, I right. think, is what she said before. And again, here, it, this was something that was discussed in the past. So we're now back in May 2006, reporting adverse drug reactions. Uh, here's some of the text, but here's Professor Munir Pir-Mohamed, uh, who's now the head of safety with uh, Commission on Human, Human Medicines. Medicines. Uh, he doesn't want to engage over, va over vaccine adverse reactions. Uh, but when we look at uh, the documentation back in 2006, this was something accepted as a completely normal thing. Yes, there are adverse reactions, but who's picking up, who's picking up the uh, bill for the people suffering those reactions at the end of the day? Uh, so you'd picked up on some of the names here. Um, well, I was very interested, actually, and, and maybe you could highlight or maybe you could shine a light on this, Brian. But it says this report was prepared under the auspices of the board. Now, what does that what does that actually mean? It's overview, overview. In my opinion, it's so. not really clear, though, is it? We don't quite know what went on because auspices is one of those words that can be interpreted in different ways. So I'm not quite sure what they're saying here. I just thought so, it was worth highlighting. Uh, yeah, so so the grey area could be that they controlled it in a very detailed way. They're all responsible because they were controlling it or it was something that was done at arm's length for them. Yeah. And really, they're just rubber stamping it. So this is uh, a lot of questions to be asked here. And this um, particular one was very interesting. Why is the rate of spontaneous reporting so low? And uh, in the box there, we've got some comments. But here, uh, this is Dutch physicians commenting on the fact that ADRs are not being reported. So the evidence is all out there. And of course, if we go to the MHRA's own website, people can see all the categories of the adverse reactions uh, shown. Uh, but the bizarre thing is, the worrying thing is that the MHRA doesn't want to 
delve into these adverse reactions. No, and I think what's the important thing there, Brian, is that's the MHR that comes from the MHRA. That's MHRA data, which qualifies what a serious adverse reaction is. And if you look at some of them that were listed, if you go back and freeze the screen and you see some of them that were listed, they're exactly the same um, or very similar to the serious adverse reactions that we're seeing after the COVID-19 vaccination. So they do all fit that category of serious adverse reactions. Okay, thank you for that. We had more to cover. We will try and share that with our audience over the, over the coming editions of the UK Column. Uh, news. There's always too much happening for us to get across, but uh, we did uh, promise we'd try and stay at a one-hour news today. I'm just going to end with this graphic. I don't know who put it together, but I think it's very pertinent. Uh, we've put the label on, well, it's true, isn't it? Uh, but really, this is the state of the country, that we've got an awful lot of piggies sitting around the table. And uh, if it's Animal Farm, we know what, what's really being said here. So uh, the daily lives of ordinary people, the health of ordinary people, absolutely thrown out the door uh, for the piggies and a very porky looking porky uh, Boris. Boris Johnson. But uh, trust up, uh, preparing to meet his end, which maybe he will do politically now his advisor has resigned. Debbie, we're going to have to leave it there. We'll say thank you very much to all our viewers and listeners. Very big thank you to everybody overseas and a very big thank you to everybody who's donating or subscribing to the UK column because we can only do what we do uh, with your financial support. So thank you for joining us and uh, there will be another UK column news at the same time tomorrow. Thank you very much. Bye bye. bye, -bye.